Good morning, church, and welcome. We're glad that you chose to worship with us today. Uh, we have a, a good morning prepared and a, and a good word prepared for our worship experience. Uh, just a reminder that, you know, while we're doing this right now, uh, digitally, there are many of us that belong to Spring Hill, the church family, outside in front of the church building, worshiping. And so we're kind of handling how we kind of reorient and, and readjust and, and join what is, what is back to some sort of normal on a week-to-week -week basis. And so while we are worshiping now, and even as we are praying, as we begin our service now in the flesh in front of the, the church building, uh, we are praying that this message now, as you're listening to it, would be rewarding and that it would be a blessing to you and your family as you gather uh, and long to gather with us in the flesh once again. As I said, we'll handle that on a week-by-week basis as to what that looks like, uh, but we're hopeful and prayerful that this would be a great morning of, of worship nonetheless. Hey, continue being the church. Continue praying for one another. Continue giving. You can give by, by mail, by, by mailing to 503 Spring Hill Road, Millport, Alabama, 35576, as you see at the bottom of your screen. Or you can give online at the link that you'll see at the bottom of your screen now. Uh, continue to be the church. Encourage one another. Lift up one another. It's hard during this social distancing time to know exactly how to do that. But I trust that as you listen to the Lord, he will prompt and lead your heart to love on one another and love on one another uh, well. Remember that at the end of our time this morning, we'll have discussion questions for you and for your family to let the word marinate. Heads of household, a great opportunity for you to disciple your family. And so you'll see those things at the end of our gathering today. Uh, and as I said, continue to look for emails and Facebook posts and messages to be informed as to what, you know, recovery looks like and getting back to a sense of normal looks like in the days to come. So look, for, look out for information as that begins to come your way. We're going to look at Colossians here in just a moment, but before we do, I want to spend time in prayer and thank God for this morning uh, that we get to worship in this way and also be praying for the rest of the church even as we are worshiping in the flesh in front of the church building. So join me as we pray that God would help us to absorb his word together. All right, let's pray. Father, be with your church, whether it be in a house or in front of our church building. Lord, we are the church because we make up the family of God, the people of God, those that you have redeemed by the blood of Jesus and escorted from darkness into wonderful light. We thank you for the gospel and pray that this morning as we worship, you would so impress on our hearts that we would grow to be more like Jesus today and every day. Help us to love people well and to love you above all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and open to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23. So I'll give you just a moment to turn in your Bibles uh, there to this passage, Colossians 1, 21 through 23. Many of you know my children. My oldest is Shiloh. Uh, she turns four in July, and she is just a wonderful blessing to, to us and to our family. Uh, her name, you know, we chose our children's names uh, specifically. They, they all kind of have a theme in mind and that it's of, of places of worship in the Bible, but also her name specifically, it's a messianic name. It means peacemaker, the one, the bringer of peace. And so as we named her that, we want her to know what that means, what it means that we are recognizing a peacemaker. You know, when we think about the word peace, or at least what I think about, is something like what we talked about last week, and what we'll talk about this week in Colossians is that if someone's making peace, then it means that before that peace existed, there was conflict. There was reconciliation that needed to be had. And that's what that word means. It means to make peace between two parties that are at conflict or that were at conflict. And so our goal with Shiloh is to raise her to know the peacemaker. And that's what her name means. And that was the theme of last week. And as I said, it's going to be the theme that we're going to look at in this week's passage in Colossians. Now, we know who the peacemaker is. His name is Christ Jesus, right? And that he made peace, as we saw in the passage right before this one, by the blood of the cross upon which he was crucified. He brought the greatest measure of peace, peace between God and sinful humanity. And what we're going to see from Paul is already he has said that God has brought peace, okay, through the blood of the cross. God has made peace with you. And now, this week, he's going to say, now here's what it means for you. This is what it means now daily, what it means that God has made peace with believers. This is what it means. And so the shift is going to go from focusing on the peacemaking work of God in Christ for the entire created order to what it means for the formerly guilty party. He's going to use the words the alienated and the hostile. We're going to look at those words a little bit more closely, but as we kind of walk through the passage, we're going to see that God has given you as a believer, if you're in Christ, he has given you a gracious position, and he has called you to be steadfast and persevere. These are the things that I want you to see as we study the passage this morning. All right? So Colossians 1, look with me as we read verses 21 through 23. Paul writes to the church in Colossae, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of uh, his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." As I said, this passage that we look at this morning, these short three little verses, are an application of last week's passage. Last week's passage was thoroughly doctrinal. This is more of an application of what we looked at last week. Last week we broke that really meaty, perhaps hymn or traditional confessional statement that Paul brings to the table in verses 15 through 20. We took that and we split it right down the middle and we saw in the first half that Paul is trying to communicate that Jesus is, first of all, he's the image of the invisible God, just that, right? But he is also Lord of creation. He's the Lord of creation, which is a massive thing to say about a little Middle Eastern carpenter that was killed by capital punishment by the greatest Roman or the greatest empire in the world. 
It's a very weighty statement for Paul to make, but that's what he says, that Jesus is Lord of creation. And then in the second part, we saw that he said that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He says that Jesus is not just the Lord of creation, but he is the Lord of your redemption, the Lord of your reconciliation. We used that phrase last week that he got the, part, the resurrection party started, that all of creation longs for the day that the enemy will be judged and the church will be rescued. And so what's going to happen now is that Paul is going to turn from, in verse 15 through 20, a general and a broad doctrinal approach to now a more second person, using the pronoun you, it's very personal, the second, pronoun, second personal pronoun you, and then an applicational approach. And so I titled this morning's message, kind of what is the theme that Paul brings to them in this passage, and that is the solid rock of reconciliation. And we're going to see this theme, the solid rock, use that term intentionally, this firm foundation, the solid rock of reconciliation. We're going to see that in two themes that Paul introduces. The first is the position of the believer. The position of the believer as I said, the shift is from focusing on the peacemaking work of God in Christ for the entire creation, restoring the created order, to what it means for the formerly guilty party. And so he's going to get very personal and very specific, not just for the all of the created order, but for you, the Colossian church, which is what we see in the very first words of verse 21. Look at it. He says, and now you, okay, and you, continuing to read in verse 21, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, it's, it, he's not exaggerating here, all right? Alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil. Now, that's heavy, and it's harsh language, but it's accurate language. We looked at that word uh, the last couple of weeks, alienated. What that means is foreign. It means separated from God. Well, how are you and I left to ourselves, and the Colossian church left to themselves, alienated, foreign, and separated from God. Well, it's very simple. It's the fact that God is holy. He's holy, meaning that He is without sin. He is perfect in every way. And we are far from that. When we are compared to a holy God, we are very surely alienated from Him. And not just alienated, and that, that sin not only separates us from God, but also that we are hostile against God, which is what he says right after that. You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, when it says hostile in mind, he's not just saying hostile in the thing, the organ of thought that you have, not just hostile in your thinking. What he means by that is that you are hostile in your mindset. The thoughts that come to your head, your whole disposition, in other words, is hostile toward God. And he says it's evidenced by what he says next, by doing evil deeds. Now, notice the word evil, not just white lies, not just doing things that are just not quite good enough. No, doing evil deeds. And what he means by that is that you and I and the Colossian church, people, you do not enter the world as a neutral party. Like I said that last week, you don't enter the world as a neutral party. You enter the world. Your natural disposition, your natural mindset is that of evil and hostility against God. That's a different wardrobe to put on each day, isn't it? It's a different way of thinking that you're not neutral. Well, I do good or bad today. No, your natural disposition, apart from the saving work of Jesus, is hostility. 
My nearly two-year-old son is getting a head start on what they call the terrible twos. He's terrible already. All right? He has his moments, but man, he, he can be awful at times. And don't worry, I'll tell him that when he's old enough to understand. He is the epitome of untaught rebellion against authority. I did not have to teach him what it looks like to rebel against his dad or against his mom. He simply has that within him. And my mom would say, well, he got it from his daddy. And I would say, no, he got it from Adam. <laughs> he got it from Adam, the very beginning that sin, the natural disposition of hostility toward God and against any authority, is passed down not from just your father or your mother. It's passed down from our first father. Sin was inherited to us from our first father, Adam, when he fell. As my son gets it from Adam, so we get it from Adam, and Colossae gets it from Adam. And so our natural disposition is not one of neutrality. It's one of hostility toward God. And so the reason, listen, you read this, and we've already looked in Colossians and seen that Paul has a very endearing approach. He, he's thankful for them. He's praying for them. He's talking about how much he loves them and that he longs to see them. But then in verse 21, he says, you know how you were so foreign to God and separated from him and you were evil in your deeds and you're hostile toward God? Well, why does he point all these things out if he loves these people so much? The point is very simple. And that's that Paul's goal here is to contrast two ideas. You were, and you who once were, past tense, you once were like that. But in verse 22, he says, he, God, Christ, has now. You see, it's contrasting, a change of direction. You once were like this, but now things have changed. Now, he says, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And we're going to stop there for a second. So the game has changed. You were once far off, but now you have been reconciled by his body in his death on the cross. Why does Paul do this? It's very simple. The gospel carries its greatest weight when you and I comprehend the greatest weight of our sin. It's exactly what Paul is doing here. It's precisely what he's saying, those who were alienated and enemies that God has now reconciled. In other words, it's, it's the Barnabas theory, right? That Barnabas, or not Barnabas, I'm sorry, Barabbas theory. That Barabbas is, is, is violent and he is an offender and he is rebellious against authority and he is the vilest of criminals. And yet, Jesus takes his place that he may go free. And we, we, we cringe at the thought of the criminal going free, but that is what Paul is contrasting here. That Jesus set free the criminal. He took one that was hostile and an enemy toward God and reconciled him to God. And so our position has shifted from hostile prisoner of sin to something else entirely. He finishes this thought in the rest of verse 22. He says he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Look at this. Very important words. In order to, or with the purpose that, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Those words in order to are very important. What he's saying is the purpose of that reconciling work for the day of judgment is to present you. That means to present you before God, right? before the Father, when you are sitting on the judgment seat, to present you in a certain light. He says three things. To present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Now, in English, 
those things all have sort of similar uh, definitions. But in the original language, in Greek, and, and you probably don't know Greek, and that's okay, but you probably know this letter of the Greek alphabet. It's the first letter, alpha. Now that word, that letter alpha is the first letter of their alphabet, and each of these words that is holy and blameless and above reproach, one word for each one of those things in Greek, all start with that letter. And so what Paul is doing is he's bringing a sense of alliteration to bring all these letters or words together and say that they all are boom, boom, boom. They, they change what is your presentation before God because of Christ. And so as they kind of run together, let's talk about each of them. He says you're being presented as holy because of the reconciling work of Jesus. What does that word mean? Again, it means set apart, as special, as unique from the rest of some group. Well, how does Jesus do that? Because our identity in Christ has changed from alienated and separated from God to brought near to Him. The next word is blameless. It means clean in the sight of God. Not dirty from sin, but clean. And then he says above reproach, which simply means free from accusation. It means not punishable. You, <laughs> you the vilest of offenders, you are not punishable before the throne of God due to sin because of the cross of Christ. Guys, that's very sobering because I think if we're honest with ourselves, we don't often feel holy and blameless and not punishable due to our sin. But that's exactly the change of mind state that we have in the cross of Christ. And so that's what he says, right? If we continue in verse, or in verse 22, reread it again, it says, He has now in his body by his death. Now, the reason I emphasize those three parts of that verse, he has now in his body by his death, is that notice that you are not active in that verse. God is active. Christ is active. He is now in his body by his death. The reason I emphasize that is that Paul says nothing about you achieving that standard of holiness, of blamelessness, and of above reproach. God did that. Christ Jesus did that. And I think that this is where we apply this beautiful truth. That we have this privileged position. That this, this standing before God is holy and blameless and above reproach is not a deserved due to us. It is a privileged position to us. I think the way that we apply that is that if, if your daily reckoning is that you're standing before God as a privileged position, not a deserved due, then it would be hard to not find yourself on your knees in any given day. If we really believe that we have a privileged position, again, the action of God, not the action of me, the action of God, a privileged position, then I find it hard-pressed that we would not find ourselves on our knees in any given day. I think that another way that we see that in our lives is that we would be people that are constantly confessing blotches of sin against our, again, presentation of being blameless, spotless. That we want to confront those things in our lives that make us not so much those things. It means that we would contemplate the contrast of our sin with God's holiness. That we're comforted, comforted that your status, my status, was not and, and is not based on your effort. Again, he has now in his body by his death. 
It's not based on you. It's based on the work of another. And so we should be comforted by that truth. And if, again, it is our daily reckoning that it is a privileged position, not a deserved due, then don't you think that each and every day, after each and every sin, we should be giving thanks in the name of Jesus that we have such a privileged position? Holy, blameless, above reproach, not punishable due to our sin. We who are holy in position are called to then live holy in lifestyle, but continuing in the faith, firm in the solid rock. And so I think the next theme, way that we see this is in verse 23, and we'll read it in a moment. But the second theme is the perseverance of the believer. The perseverance of the believer. Perseverance is a key doctrine of what it means to follow Jesus. And though it isn't used explicitly by Paul, you don't see the word perseverance in this verse. It is the word at the heart of this verse, concluding the point that Paul is making. We see perseverance very clearly that Paul's talking about in verse 23. If, big word if, okay, you'll be presented as holy and blameless above reproach before him in the day of judgment he's speaking of. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. No, just I'm going to reread the first part of that verse. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That's what he's saying, okay? You will be presented. You will be presented as holy, blameless, above reproach, if you continue in the faith. Now, your ears may have just raised up a little bit, and you think, well, wait a, wait a second. Is Paul saying that not everybody who's a believer will stay a believer? Well, he's not saying that you will lose your salvation if you abandon the faith. He is saying those that continue in the faith prove themselves to actually be believers. I'm going to say that again. He's not saying that you'll lose your salvation if you abandon the faith. He is saying those that continue in the faith prove themselves to actually be believers. I'm going to read a verse that really typifies this doctrine. It's 1 John 2, 19. It says, They went out from us, us the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. It's very simple that this is what that means. Those that continue in the faith prove themselves to be truly of us, to be reborn, born again believers. And those that fall away and never come back and prove themselves then that they never truly were reborn of us, born again and of the faith. And so what we see built into this passage is very simple and very clear that Paul is warning these people. Remember the false teachings that are kind of infiltrating this church? And he's saying, hey, be warned. Don't fall away from the faith. Keep running the race. It's a warning. Now, all that being said, Paul is confident. He gives this warning, but he's confident that these people will continue in the faith. Look down just a little bit at chapter 2, verse 5. He says, For though I am absent in the body... Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing, listen, to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. 
Paul's confident. He is confident that they are going to continue in the faith. They will continue. Why? Because of what it said there in verse 20 or in verse 5 of chapter 2. Because of their firmness of their faith in Christ. Which is what we see <clears throat> just above that in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, in the gospel that you heard. Put it this way. If persevering is the aim, then the way to prevent waywardness is establishment in the truth. Establishment in the gospel. Paul applies this for us then in two categories in verse 23. He says, stable and steadfast. And then he says, not shifting from the hope. So let's kind of break those two things down. And we'll see some application in here as we talk about these two different things. First of all, stable and steadfast. Well, I think that a good way to understand that is what we've titled our entire series, Walking Through the Book of Colossians. To be stable and steadfast means to be rooted. It means to be deeply rooted. Paul, and later on in this book, in chapter 2 even, he's going to choose the, the illustration of roots, of trees. Because trees are mighty structures that are very top-heavy, and yet they rarely fall, right? Trees are massive. And here in Millport, there are some trees that are just gigantic. But those things have been there a lot longer than you and I have been here. And there's a reason for that. Because although they are gigantic and they are top-heavy, they stand stable and steadfast, despite countless mighty storms. And we have some mighty storms. I mean, I have to turn on my TV so I feel like every month because there's danger of a tree falling down in our yard. Because we have mighty, mighty winds and yet much more mighty trees that stand through it all. The only time that trees fall is when their roots are compromised. When their roots are compromised, they don't have anything to stand on. They tip right over. Listen, Satan wants you to fall. He wants you to crumble. He wants you to be not mighty, but a pushover. But the only chance that he has is to compromise your roots. That's his only chance. But the thing is, he doesn't have to introduce a mystical, false teaching to tip you over. Satan simply wants any and everything to be number one in your life except for Jesus. He will settle for that. He will settle for anything being number one in your life except for Christ himself. He wants your morality to be number one, you being a good person. That's the most important thing. You can do that. That's what he wants. He wants your kids to be your number one. He wants your job to be your number one. He wants your education, your, your cell phone, your entertainment, your social media, your sports, or your hobbies. He wants something else to rule your heart that is not Jesus. And if a day goes by where any of those things takes priority in your life over Jesus, simply put, Satan chalks that up as a win. And I would venture to say he probably gets a lot of wins out of us. In Paul David Tripp's devotion, New Morning Mercies, I'm paraphrasing, but one of the things that he recently said was, a day's goodness is determined not by whether it was free from conflict and that work went well and that you were happy, but rather if you honored Christ that day. I'll say it this way, that a day in which you were battered and yet persevered and stood firm in Christ and far from sin is better than a day filled with pleasure but spent distant from Jesus. 
we've got to change our thinking. We've got to change our disposition. This is what it means to be stable and steadfast. Satan wants to pick up a win by causing you to have some priority, have your roots rooted in something other than Jesus in any given day, and he'll settle for anything that you love more than Christ. The other thing that he puts in this passage is not shifting from the hope. Emphasis on the words, the hope. The word for shifting here is, is, is building language. It's, it's construction language. It's like a building that's built on a rock and then shifting to another looser foundation. You build a sturdy structure and then if it was possible to somehow lift up that house that's on that firm structure and then put it on a pile of dirt. They'll be senseless. And that's what he's saying is that it will be senseless for you who have been firmly planted on a rocky place, the gospel, to then be shifted to something that is loose and that just crumbles. What he means is that your hope is in Jesus, not in other false hopes we construct with our own minds. And I promise you, church, we have them. We have them. It means that your anchor of hope is not in a president, that your anchor of hope is not in a political party or in a nation or in your bank account, or in your house, or in your retirement fund, or in a family member. That those things, if they were to go away, that your hope would be firm and not shifted. You know, we sing about this, but I don't know if we always believe this. But man, let us live the song that we sing. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Hope is built on nothing less, nothing less. And we call back to the big if at the beginning of verse 23. You'll be presented as holy and blameless and above reproach before him if, if you are stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope. This is what that means, church. The kingdom of God is not for people who have simply walked an aisle, who were dunked in the Baptist church baptistry that they grew up in, who grew up in a Christian home, or who prayed a special prayer with the pastor. The kingdom of God is for those who hold fast in the faith. To take the words of Paul, it's for those who have finished the race, who keep the faith, and who fight the good fight. It's not a matter of praying the prayer, then living up to some call. You can't. You can't. It's not a matter of praying a prayer than living up to a call. It's a matter of praying a prayer than every day leaning into that prayer for hope today and tomorrow and into eternity. What's our faith? What's our hope in? Is it not the firm truth of the gospel? Paul's warning is very simple. Finish the race. Before that, cling to your privileged position, holy, blameless, and above accusation. Isn't it good news that we can cling to those three words as our gospel story? I don't feel like that very often, but I lean into the hope that God's words are truer than my feelings, that he is our hope, that he has declared us and presented us as blameless and above accusation. And we echo the words once again, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let us not trust in any sweet frame that tempts us, but rather lean wholly 
on the name of Christ Jesus. It is in him that we have a solid rock, a firm foundation in victory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that these words are true. That we don't have to wonder, and we don't have to wonder. That we're not tempted to, to be lacking in steadfastness and be lacking in stability, but that we can plant ourselves deeply and be rooted deeply in the good news of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would be the number one affection of our hearts each and every day, and that we would give Satan zero victories. Lord, help us to cling to you and to hope in holiness, in blamelessness, and in being above accusation because of the work of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you guys for, for joining us today. You'll have your discussion questions at the end here in just a moment with this live. Uh, man, we long for the day that, that you also will be able to join us in the flesh uh, at the church building. Uh, but even still, we are the church. It's just a building. Uh, a building that God has given us and that we're thankful for, but a building nonetheless. Go and be the church this week. And watch, again, watch your emails and uh, your text messages and things because we'll be kind of as days go by giving some uh, instructions and some logistical things and handling on a week-by-week -week basis what we're going to do next. So I love you and I'm thankful for you and I hope to see you very, very soon. Have a good day.